Amen. Thank you, Joe, for leading us, and thank you to our worship team. Amazing. Always. Thank you, guys. Happy Sunday, everybody. Shall we wave to our, our junior hires, our, our um, Sunday school kids? Thank you, guys. We love you guys. It's good to see all your faces today, and I know that you're thinking, it's good to see your face, Danny. That's what you're thinking right now. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be here. I just wanted to mention Ed and Nita that are here. And um, Ed used to play on our worship team, and we were joking that we should have had Ed walk through the backstage with his bass, you know, just walking through. And like, but, uh, yeah, Ed, welcome. And I know that um, your daughter, Bree, wants to just slip in without recognizing the fact that today's her 43rd birthday. So I just thought I'd throw that out there. But, um, uh, uh, but happy birthday to you. And I want to say... Um, yeah, sorry. Your mom told me everything, so... Um, but all that aside, now that I've thoroughly embarrassed you, and I apologize, uh, I, I wanted to embarrass somebody else, which probably won't be an embarrassment at all, because um, we have in our midst a Guinness Book of World Record holder. So uh, you know Taylor as the saxophone, keyboard, worship team guy, um, but I know him as the, the guy who pushed a stroller faster than anyone in the world for a mile straight. And... Um, yeah, so Taylor, just wave to the crowd. Wave to your fans, man. Um, a new friend of mine who, who's been attending the church sent me a, a text and said, what's up, dude? This guy's making me feel bad. For those of us that can't even run, period, now he's running a mile with a stroller and a world record. But I thought just for fun we would show this day. So if you don't know this, uh, if you don't follow us on our social media, um, Taylor is a why not guy. I love that about you, man. Like, why not? You know, that you're, you, uh, you and Olivia are amazing people. And Holland, your daughter's amazing. And your child to come will be amazing. I think you just have been given superpowers. But... Um, um, but I love that about you guys, that you just see the world that way and opportunities and, and, um, and you're fun. And this is just a fun thing that Taylor decided to do. And so I just wanted to share it with you guys because I'm really proud of them. So if we could see that video. sign language of more like I want more and uh, there was a lot more you know, I think you did another lap after that but for, for those of us I think I have like a 19 minute mile uh, he, Taylor pushing a stroller had a f- under four minutes what was it four minutes and 441 and, and like not just beat the world record but like slayed the world record so hey man congratulations Well, I can't think of a better segue into Exodus chapter 21. (laughs) 
Um, Exodus chapter 21. I, I have to say that I am loving our series in Exodus. I hope that, that you are as well. But it's been so life-giving to me personally, just in terms of study. And, and the temptation that you have when you're going through God's Word and you come to stuff that you're like, uh, what do we do with this? And my initial thought process, man, I'm, it, you know, you get into the, the, the slavery of Egypt and the injustice that's there, the justice of God who comes and raises up this, um, this leader, Moses, to free his people. Man, that stuff will just preach all day long, right? You just find so many things. And then the faithfulness of God as he brings him through the wilderness. And, you know, as you're in, in, in the preparation for the series, you're, you're trying to get the big picture of the book. And so you're listening and reading Exodus quite often. And you know that you're coming close to the, to the chapter 20, right? Chapter 20 is when the Ten Commandments are, are given. And Pastor Andy did a, a great job leading us through the Ten Commandments last week. And then you come into 21. And then you're going to get into, like, what's called, you know, case law, right? How these things get applied. And, and for me, I thought, you know, we could take like chapters 21 through 23 and just do a survey over it and just give some general, like, you know, this is kind of some principles that are there. And we'll do that to a certain extent. Um, but especially, and you'll see in just a moment when we get into the very first topic, it's like, really? You know, how are we going to work through this? And so in order to understand Exodus chapter 21 and, and really understand for us, and we've said this um, from the pulpit throughout this series, is that there are things that are being spoken to uh, the children of Israel, to the Hebrew people, in a moment in time in the Old Testament for a specific reason. And we've got to be careful that as we're interpreting Scripture, that we don't just read certain things. We don't just pick something. For example, if your ox gores a donkey, then you need to give a person a certain amount of money if that donkey dies. So, so like you're like, okay, well, um, that was in my quiet time today, and how do I apply that? So you have to look into some of these things. It's God's Word, and, and and all of God's word is profitable, right? That it's for us. And so it starts to get really kind of exciting as you as you delve deeper to say, I understand the the law, or I understand the scenario. How does that apply to my life? And so in doing that in the Old Testament, you're looking for principle. What are the principles that are at play? Secondly, anytime you're reading the Bible, and I would say in, in the Old and New Testament, but so often in the Old Testament, you're learning about the character and nature of God. Who is this God? What is He like? How does He lead His people? And that is a discovery that we get to have for the rest of our lives. It's exciting. And so anytime um, you are tempted to just jam past a bit of Scripture because it's a little too much, uh, I would encourage you to double down and to get in there even deeper and ask the hard questions and try to discern what God is saying. And there's certain um, parameters that you can set in knowing that whatever you're reading, if it hits you sideways, you'll know that whatever we read in the Bible will never violate the character and nature of God, nor will it violate Scripture in and of itself. Does that make sense? So if we have one obscure Scripture that says something that we might think is saying something, but we take the full counsel of Scripture and go, wait a minute, God's not like that and the Bible's not like that, it helps us to come up with the accurate interpretation of the Bible. Um, and so I'm giving you all this fair warning and all this background to say some of the things we're going to talk about today are the very things that you'll find on websites that go Christians are wacky, bigoted, and God is not, couldn't be real, and, and this is all hypocritical mess. Have you ever um, fallen prey to any of that argument or people say that stuff to you? No? Is everybody good? Okay. I realize too that this is perfectly strategic knowing that you've had an hour less sleep than usual. <laughs> To get right into Exodus chapter 21, so, so I'm, I'm grateful for that. But starting from um, the, the understanding of what we're, we're covering today, 
Um, Pastor Andy talked to us about the Ten Commandments last week, and the Ten Commandments are, are God's law, right? And we know that, that we, can, we can look at these Ten Commandments and say there's some unique things about them. And how many of you know if we would just live by these principles, if societies would, be, um, would see these as, as the, the parameters by which to live, um, it would be a much better world, right? It would be a much better world. And, and we're grateful that part of the, the, our nation, for example, the Judeo-Christian value of America that's under attack and has been eroding for many years, but the founding of it falls under this idea of the Ten Commandments, right? And so we know that, that this is something that, that we can apply on a daily basis to our lives. And when we understand the Ten Commandments, we understand that these were things that were said audibly by God. To the point that as you read Exodus 20, they're like, no more. God's freaking me out. Like the mountains, the thunder, the theatrics of it. But, but it's significant to know that when these commands were given, everybody heard it, including Moses. Does that make sense? So we know that this is something powerful. Um, the Ten Commandments were not only spoken audibly to Moses and in the hearing of Israel, but they were also written. And who wrote them? God, right? It's okay to speak up in church. Um, by the way, we always say, like, we can see everything from up here. You know that? Like, there's no one invisible. In it. We see it all. So I just want to say that. Okay. So, so, <laughs> so anyways, the, the, the finger of God wrote on tablets of stone. That's powerful. When you think of the, the imagery of that, but the reality of it, the voice of God speaking to Moses and everybody else, the finger of God writing something in stone. There's even sayings like it's written in stone. If something is written in stone, it's, it's there, right? Um, thirdly, that it was that these Ten Commandments were, were to be um, uniquely preserved, right? We know that as we read later, we'll, we'll start in, in after chapter 25 reading about the Ark of the Covenant and some of the tabernacle. But these were things that weren't just to be like placed on a wall or, hey, where did those Ten Commandments go? You know, that these were things that were, were preserved in the Ark of the Covenant in a very holy place in a very specific way so that they're not to be forgotten, Right? But after these Ten Commandments throughout the Torah, right? The Torah is the first five books of the Bible and that the Jewish people would call this the law, right? That these five books... So after these Ten Commandments, and as you take the Torah, there's 613 commandments. Everybody say 613. 613. So all of these commandments deal with everything in life. They deal with, um, you know, with... with um, criminal law, with civil law, with social issues, all of these things throughout these 613 laws. And so you begin to kind of get a picture, and it's important to have this understanding of what we're talking about today, is that there is a difference between the Ten Commandments that were given by God, spoken by God, written by the finger of God, and then the case law that we're going to now delve into a little bit. And some of this we're going to get into, and, and other of it we're going to survey over, but there's a difference between the two, and my point in all of this long introduction is to say some that we can apply and specific, and other was, was designed, God speaking through to Moses, okay, the, the, the part about these case laws that are different than the Ten Commandments is God speaks them to Moses, and tells him, this is what you say to the people. In fact, we should look at some scriptures so that we don't get off track. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 1, speaking of the Ten Commandments, it says that God spoke these words saying, that's God spoke these words saying, and he said this in a very public way. Now if you jump to Exodus 21, where we're going to start for today, he tells Moses, now uh, this is Exodus 21 verse 1, 
Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now, why would we need the Ten Commandments? Why would we need the law? All of these things, and as we're going to see today, they're going to point us towards Jesus. From, the, from everything in the Bible is going to all point towards Jesus. That You know as you read the Bible, you're reading a story. right? And it's the story of God and the story of salvation and mankind. And these things are important, right, to keep, keep in your mind and to keep in your heart and to pass on to your children and to, to speak of these things. Because we can't just pick and choose the stuff that we like in the Bible, but we're reading a continuous story. And the continuous story is always going to point us towards God. The law, these Ten Commandments are going to show us that we can't do it. You can't, uh, and, and I've heard this said before, um, how many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? Right? So, so there, we, we would violate these commands over and over again. And the law is like a mirror. The law is like a schoolmaster. The law is like a guardian. And what it does is it shows us right and wrong. But, but, but here's the really bad news. That Jeremiah the prophet says these words that, that are so true. And we can easily say it about society. We can easily say it about the people who've wronged us. And if we're really honest, we can say it about ourselves. He says these words in Jeremiah um, chapter 17, verse 9. And now keeping in mind this continuous story that's unfolding, right? The heart of man is deep, deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Are you familiar with this passage? It's the one that you say when someone cuts you off on the freeway, you know, or whatever else. But, it, but it's not often the one that we go, okay, in my core... In, in my humanity, there's a heart sickness, right? There's a heart sickness. And man, it's going to get exhausting as you read through the Old Testament about this progression of, of a God who loves His people and this law that presupposes that they're not going to do the right thing anyways because their heart is sick. And so He's going to lay out a certain amount of laws and, and, and rules and they're going to what? They're going to violate them. I mean, lays out the Ten Commandments, they make a golden calf and start worshiping it. And just right after, God actually spoke. The mountain thundered. I mean, they felt all the feels. Everything was there. But the heart was sick. And they turned towards idolatry, violating the commandment. And then God will say, okay, these things I want you to do. And they'll violate it. And then God will go, okay, here's some more rules. And they'll violate those. And then throughout these five books of the Bible, you're going to see rules violation, rules violation. Are you guys as exhausted as I am right now? Why? Because it's raising this tension and it's showing this reality that mankind cannot do it on our own. You can't do it on your own. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not righteous enough. I can't will myself into it. There are some who have better self-discipline than others. There's some who have a higher moral standard than others. But no one can, can do what Jesus did. No one can, can fulfill the law. No one can be uh, an adherent to, to these rules and regulations that would enable somebody to be reconciled to God or to be close to a holy God or to not be defiled. And so these things are important because they, they really put us on the edge of our seat. They wear us out to the point of, of being ready for the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Jesus came to be the solution or the great physician to our heart sickness.
And that by accepting Him and by, by following Him and believing in Him, we're free from the law. And by grace, we're saved. This is the gospel. And, and, and we, we need to rehearse it. We need to get excited about it and, and allow it to be alive in us and to be a part of our worldview, part of the lenses that we see society through. Because when, it, when, when, when it's alive in us and when we're walking in the reality of our salvation, it can't help but spill out in the way that we live our lives and the way that we impact other people. And so for these reasons, the law is important and the big story of the Bible is super, super important. And so... Getting back to Exodus chapter 21, it begins with verse 1. These are the rules that you shall set before them. This is God talking to Moses. This is Moses writing them down on his own. And this is Moses sharing these laws with the people, or excuse me, these rules. Um, There's so many of them, but the very first one is this. It says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. So I'm, I'm thinking about that, and I'm like, okay, let's just skip that one and go on to something else. Because this is a minefield, right? This, this is where people would say, oh, so did the Bible invent slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? And that's where we have to just take a huge pound the brakes and say, absolutely not. It's not consistent with the character and nature of God, nor is it consistent with the rest of the Bible in how we view human, humankind. And so the, the very first thing that I thought of when I read this is, okay, I have to reorient myself not towards my emotions, not towards the conversations, not towards history, not towards anything else. I have to reorient my emotions back to the character and nature of God. That is home base, right? What do I know about God? And the first thing that I know about God from the very beginning of the Bible, what does Genesis 1.27 teach us about everybody? It says that we are all male and female created in the image of God. And so if everyone in the room, including every person that you don't like, in fact, the person who you really can't stand, everybody is made in the image of God, then there's something within every person that has value, that it is not okay to own another person because everybody has value. We would all agree on that, I hope. Begins to help us understand how we view the unborn, right? How we view the tragedy of abortion. You know, these are all such hot topics that if you say, it's like, is he going to go there? We shouldn't be afraid to go there in certain areas, not with with just absolute um, anger and, you know, condemnation towards people, but we have to go there in such a way of saying, the Bible makes it clear for us to say that life is valuable to God. Life is valuable to God, and so taking that life is it violating God's ways. It's violating God's laws. And so we, we understand it in, in current social issues, but then specific to slavery, I just, I mean, I'm like, let's just jump right into the New Testament. So grateful. How many of you um, have read the book of Philemon? And if, if you're from a, maybe a different denomination, how many you read Philemon? You know, I, I, I'm not quite sure. But, but this is... If you want to feel good about yourself, be like, man, I just read this whole book of the Bible. Because uh, it's, it's a one-chapter one, you know. You can, you, if you want to feel great about yourself, you know, I read it like seven times, you know. Uh, it's work that into a conversation. But anyhow, the, the background of, of this book is important for understanding, again, the big picture of the Bible and this issue that it starts these rules with, slavery. So it goes like this. This is now the New Testament. Philemon, or Philemon, honestly, I'm not quite sure, but this this individual is a a wealthy landowner, and he has a servant named Onesimus, right? 
And the background from history would say that Onesimus likely stole from him and fled. And as he flees, because if you steal from your master, you're going to lose your life. And so he flees, and where he flees is to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, great to his surprise, he meets the Apostle Paul. And anyone who meets the Apostle Paul is going to hear the gospel. And he hears the gospel, Paul's in prison, he accepts Jesus. Now you've got a huge dilemma. What do you do? You're out on the run, you're a slave, and you've broken the law, and now you accept Jesus. And yes, absolutely, 100%, your sins are forgiven, and your, your soul is secure, but you still have a mess that you have to deal with. Anyone can relate with that? Don't raise your hand, please. Mandated reporter. No, um, I'm just kidding. It's important, though, because then you begin to hear Paul's heart. And I just want to read it from Scripture. If you would turn there in the, in the New Testament, uh, Philemon, in the 8th verse. If you don't have it or you're like, where is that book? And you don't want to be embarrassed flipping your Bible. It's going to be right on the screen. It says, and, and, and again, I love the way the Apostle Paul sets up arguments. Like he says it and it's like, it feels like super passive aggressive. But it's... it's um, It's consistent with the building of an argument in the Greek language and the Greek thinking. He says, Accordingly, I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, and yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He basically is saying, Hey, Philemon, um, I've got your former slave with me, and I could like tell you what to do. I could make you do it because of the authority I have as an apostle, and you say you're a believer and I'm an apostle. He says, but I'm, for love's sake, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm going to let you make the right decision. And this is huge in understanding the character of God and how he lays out laws and lays out rules for us. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do the right thing, he says. I, Paul, and listen to this, it's like, you could, I'm an old man, you know? Like, he's going for the sympathy card. No, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus. You understand what happened with just that statement? He is assigning such value to this person who is society would call a slave or a servant. There's no difference between those two words in either the Greek. Well, there is some in the Greek, but not in the Hebrew. He says, um, this is my son. And, and, and that is not a small thing. That's not something that's thrown around. So like the main guy, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, your former slave is my son. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful and you, and you, and to you and to me. This is actually a play on words because the word Onesimus means useful or profitable. That's what his name meant. And so he said, you saw him as useless, but who he is in the core, who, who he's created to be, is useful. He's useful to me, he's useful to the kingdom, and you need to see him as such. And then he goes on in verse 12. It says, I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent. Do you see this? This interplay between you. I could make you do it, but you need to choose the right thing because you have free will. You, are, you, are you following this? I want you to, to do this. And he says, in order that, the, that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but by your own accord. For this perhaps is why um, he was parted from you for a while, that you might be able to have him back forever. Now listen, you may be able to have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, we'll talk about what that means, but more than a bondservant, as your beloved brother. 
especially um, to me, but how much more to you, both flesh, um, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is huge. Paul is, is calling out this issue and he's creating such a beautiful argument to say, you, you thought you owned him at one point, but he's, he's your brother. He's just like you. And you would be really wise to do the right thing, to reshape the way that you see people. Um, and so the Bible didn't create slavery, but as we get into these first couple of laws, the Bible regulated it. The Bible regulated it. And um, the regulation of it, just like in the, in the interplay that Paul has with, with um, Philemon, it sets the seed to like, okay, now, now I'm showing you what justice looks like. Now you take it and continue to reform it. And, and so Christianity is um, the worldview that brought an abolition to slavery. I think we know that, right? William Wilberforce, did you see the movie? You know, William Wilberforce, a British guy, he, he's a British guy, he's in Parliament, and, um, and, and he is just your typical politician, right? Like, he's, he's not known to be this great guy, um, and, and so he's kind of in it, doing his thing. This is like 1790s, seven, early 17, uh, late 17, uh, whatever, you, 1790s, okay? Jeez, I'm like Charlie Babbitt up here. So, so anyways, he, he then um, has a... a a legitimate, dramatic encounter with God and a, a radical conversion to say that he's a different person at this point. And in his own words, he says, I became a serious Christian. And for him to be a serious Christian, he's like, I'm not taking any more bribes, I'm not drinking alcohol, and I'm not hanging, this is him, and I'm not hanging out with any of those terrible people in Parliament anymore. And so he goes through that, that point, and then he realizes, okay, wait a minute, I have this unique set of skills and this platform and so in order for, and it's public, so in order for me to be influential, i got to figure out a way to be light and to get back in. So he does. He gets back in, and he begins to interact with Parliament as a parliamentarian. And he writes legislation for 16 years to abolish slavery. Year after year, he writes, he writes laws, and they get turned down. And until 18, I think it was 1807, in 1807, um, Great Britain put an end to slavery. The U.S. was having a, 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 similar, um, a similar battle. You know, the northern states had, had put an end to slavery by like 1805, but it wasn't until 1865 until we get the 13th Amendment, right? And so this is just a, a, a history moment for us, but the point is understanding this. It wasn't because everybody just felt like, wait, this is wrong. It was because of the reality of, the, of God's laws written in the hearts of people that shapes morality, that causes you to do something about what you see. Does that make sense? This is why this stuff is important. It's not so that we look at it and go, okay, now, if I get a slave, then I have to do such and such. And if that, the slave does that, then I do such and such, which is what you're going to read right now. It's so that we understand the principle. And I'm going to hopefully show you the principle uh, as we continue on and get right back into the text. Um, I had a William Wilberforce quote I just saw in my notes. I think it's good to look at. It says, So enormous and dreadful and so irremediable is the trade's wickedness. Um, uh, did the trade's wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition? Let the consequences be what they would. I would for this time determine that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. And when he says, you know, whatever, let, let whatever consequences would come, I mean, he lived those 16 years of his life 100% under the threat of death constantly. 
You know, it wasn't like you just go on vacation and just try to forget it all, but you were 100% in fighting for this cause of justice and righteousness because of God's law written in your heart, because of a true north, because of an understanding of what morality is in a really shaky and confused world. And so back to the text, we get into to verse 3. Is everybody still with me? Yes. Okay, good. It says, about the slave that you purchase, which again, by the way, I wrote this down because I thought it was important. There were, in context to Hebrew slaves, there were like four ways that somebody would become a slave. Okay, and, and they, 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 it wasn't common for Hebrews to be stolen and then sold on the block, right? Uh, for for um, other cultures or when there was war, the spoils of the war and the people who were captured in war could become um, servants to that nation. But for the Hebrew people, it was almost always an agreed upon thing that somebody would be so poor, so impoverished that they would say, hey, I would like to sell myself to you so that I could work for you and that you will own me, and in owning me, you take care of everything, my food, my, my um, shelter, my life, and, um, and that's my, my exchange. Secondly, you would find that someone, uh, uh, most likely a daughter, would be sold into slavery for the dowry or the price of the bride. Okay? This is why um, these things are not applicable to us, but principles are discernible. So, in other words, in this culture, the father could say, Hey, um, here's my daughter, and it was a dowry culture anyways. Given the situation of the family, maybe the poverty that was there, um, the hope in the best case scenario would be that the father would, would want a better life for his daughter. So he's going to choose a wealthy landowner and say, Hey, here's my daughter in marriage, and would you take care of her? Or maybe she could marry one of your sons. Crazy in our world. Like, Kate, that would never happen. I would not do that to you. Um, the, the, another way that would, would be um, a way that you would enter into slavery is bankruptcy. You know, so you can't pay your debts to someone, you give yourself. And the, the, uh, the final way would be because you're a thief and you stole something and you couldn't, you couldn't make uh, restitution, so you become the restitution. So these are the ways that when we're, and I'm not justifying, there's zero justification for this. I think you understand that. I'm just telling you that what we're reading in this context is about that. And so as we get in, in in verse 3, it says, If the slave comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If the master gives him a wife and she bears him, um, oh, sorry, I missed a big part. Um, it, It basically... This is a very important part. In verse 2 it says, When you buy a slave, a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free. Um, this is very important. Because I got stuck saying, when you, for me, I, when I read, when you buy a slave, that's where I got stuck. And I just got, how in the world is it okay to buy a slave? And then as I listened over and over to the totality of these laws, I realized these are regulations to protect the vulnerable. Because when you buy a slave, it's saying, he goes, you don't get to own anything. Your culture, your, um, your rules permit you to do this stuff. You only get them for six years. 
seventh year they get to go free because you don't own anything. It made provision for freedom. It didn't allow the continual abuse of somebody. And so that was the first part that I opened my eyes to and go, okay, I want to dig deeper into this. Secondly, is this, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him son or daughter, the wife or her children shall be her master's and he shall go out alone. You could read that and just be like, okay, next. But you read that and go, what? So if you come in single, you go out single. If you come in married, you go out married. If you get married while you're a slave, you're out in that seventh year. But you get to keep, the, the master gets to keep your wife and kids. What do you do with that? I'll, I'll take hands, please, anybody. <laughs> it just seemed like, I, I just was like, oh, I don't want to preach this. But then I go, okay, I want to go a level deeper. You know? And so you look into history, you pray, you listen to it over and over again. And then you come into the next passage, which is the bondservant, um, uh, the, the bondservant loophole you know? <laughs> or clause. Um, there it says that basically, um, if he comes in, um, sorry, let me find that real quick. If a play, if in verse um, 21 and verse 5, but if a slave plainly says, I love my master and my children, and I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the doorpost, and his master shall bore an awl through his ear, and with the awl um, he shall be a slave forever. Okay, this is so easy, guys. Duh. The bondservant. No, I'm kidding. The scenario is this. Ancient world. Poverty is not um, just like, oh, there's the poor over there, there's the rich over there. Poverty equals death. So the reason that you're so desperate to become given, you know, give yourself into slavery is because you cannot survive outside of the covering, the safety and the protection of somebody who is wealthier than you and more powerful than you. And so when you, when you um, hear the scenario of you come in with a wife, you go out with a wife, and then you hear the scenario of your kids are staying here and your wife is staying here, it's economic. It's economic. And what it's saying is that if you came in that poor and you're leaving your seventh year, you don't have what it's going to take. You're going to leave with your wife and kids and you're all going to die. Um, you, if you want to leave on your own, that's up to you. You can leave on your own and hopefully support yourself. But in, this, in these rules, we're going to protect the most vulnerable. And the most vulnerable in that society would be women and children. You see the shifting of the lenses? And I'm not just like making this stuff up and hoping this is what it says. I'm going back to the character of God. What does it say in the character of God um, through the Old Testament? The Psalms are a great place to go. And so let's look at this Psalm, um, chapter 68 and verse 5. And thank you so much for staying with me. I know this isn't like, a nor- like our normal sermons, but it's the Word of God. And we've got to be able to wrestle with it step by step. Psalm 68 and verse 5. This is our God. He is a father to the fatherless. And he is a protector of widows. Granted, the one who's married and the, the husband that leaves is not a widow. But she's just... Close to it. Um, he's a, so we know of God. He's a, fa- he's a father to the fatherless. He's a protector of widows. Is God in his holy habitation. He settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. And the rebellious dwell in the parched land. 
before we make an assumption that this is cruelty, we have to look at the character of God. The character of God is protecting um, the most vulnerable. But then you get into this whole, um, like I said, the, the bondservant clause when it says if my if I love my master and my wife <laughs> if you don't love your wife it's like yeah keep them I'm out you know <laughs> but if you love your master and your wife and your children you say I will not go free I willfully will place myself under the provision and the protection of this person that I trust and I'm doing it not as an owned person I'm not doing it because you bought me I'm doing it because I choose to do it and the mark of that for everybody to see is I got this super sick plug in my ear you know just kidding sorry I have an earring in my ear it's not some brutal thing that you take them to the doorpost and bang on their ear he was piercing his ear and there's such imagery there you remember anything else that happened in doorposts I don't know, blood being put in the doorpost and the sign of the cross for the Passover? Are all these possible clues to something that's even greater, right? To, to Jesus, to continually going, hey, Paul the Apostle, this great, the, the great guy who has all this authority. In Romans, he introduces himself to, in his letter, he says, I, Paul, servant of the Lord. If you look at that word, he's saying the word doulos. Doulos means a bondservant, one who I willfully choose to place myself under the submission, protection, and provision of God. I am a bondservant of God. So don't get so tangled in the weeds of what was the injustice that we think was happening through our lenses of their culture. Hang on to the reality that you and me, we have the great privilege to put ourselves at that doorpost and, and to pierce our ear in such a way to let the whole world know that I am willfully a bondservant of one who will always take care of me, will always provide for me, and I'm proud of it. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That's really good. I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> I started thinking about this is right around this point in, in my... Um, preparation for this stuff and I thought yeah that's all good but but how does this hit us you know this is a sermon this isn't me defending scripture where, where how does it hit us and I started thinking of the like we're in the way forward series and started thinking of this terminology and these themes that run throughout the big story of the bible and the, the big the big theme is either slavery or freedom isn't it it's captivity in Egypt or it's freedom through Christ but what's st steady all the way through is that we're not running our own show. We're not writing our own story. That we're coming under the authority of, of a God who loves us so much to patiently and justly bring about reform in our lives, to bring about transformation, right? Does transformation happen just like that? No. It's a slow and steady, intentional process. Captivity happens very quickly, though. Um, we were talking about this uh, in, in our um, guys' Bible study. We were reading in Timothy, and this is in, um, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 24. It says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, and patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, and again, this is, this, I know we're jumping all over the Bible, but this, so we understand, is this is how we're meant to be in the local church, right? Paul is teaching Timothy, this is how you help people, this is how you disciple people. 
So if you're going to have a position of eldership or a position of teaching, you've got to know how to do this stuff, how to, how to correct somebody with gentleness, and that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of truth. Verse 26. And they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. The snare of the devil to capture you to do the devil's will. This is really what slavery is. And this is maybe where we might turn towards, New Testament turn towards our lives. And to be able to think, man, where are these areas where um, we are held captive to sin? John, in John's gospel, Jesus says it super clearly. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a, what? Slave to sin. And sin's slavery is the worst kind of slavery of all. That sin is a horrible, horrible taskmaster. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son has set you free, you are free indeed. The greatest emancipator of all times is Jesus. And what he's emancipating us of is the slavery of sin over our lives. I think you know this. And I think that you might say it. But... um, but I think as we dig deeper, as we look at these issues, we have to really take a step and, and take a step back, look into our own hearts and go, are there areas where knowingly or unknowingly, I'm actually being snared? Like I'm, I'm the slave. I'm, I'm, tra- I'm not the freed person, but I'm enslaved by sin. Is there areas where I might need that gentle correction in my life so that I might find repentance and find freedom? Does this make sense? Sin's a cruel master. Um, does it, I, I wrote some of these questions down in reflection for me and for you. A cruel master, does it, does it own me in any area of my life? Does sin own any area of my life? Am I willing to receive correction that leads to freedom? I'm not talking about somebody getting up in your business and telling you, you know, things that you have the right not to be told what to do. I'm talking about something completely different. I'm talking about the lack of pride where we, might, where we might not have pride in our life, to listen to correction, to listen to somebody bringing um, God's truth to us. So in other words, do I, am I willing to receive correction that leads to freedom, to realize that, that, um, that it is deceitful what pride does? And the deceitful part is like, don't judge me. Isn't that the thing that we've heard for so many years? Christians are so judgmental. Let's just let everybody do whatever they want to do because we don't want to be guilty of being that jerky, mean Christian. Because we have an aunt or uncle that's like that and everybody hates them or something like that. Whatever the scenario is. This isn't license for us to be the moral police on everyone. But this is talking about even within our own circles. That if we realize that this, this, like when we have like a physical reaction towards slavery, like, oh, it's so evil. But then we realize that there's a slave master that's owning some of us. How do we feel about that? And when we realize that we're emancipators, like we have the key to, to bringing that freedom. But I, I just really don't want to go there with you. I don't want to open that door. I don't want to tell you about that thing. Man, it enters into some uncomfortable territory, doesn't it? I can tell it's uncomfortable because I can hear the silence in the room. <laughs> I realize that, that any of these things that keep us from doing that well is, is pride. It's our own personal pride. Now, as if um, it couldn't get any worse, I'm going to continue on. Uh, I have a few more minutes here. Verse 7, if a man um, sells his daughter as a slave, um, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. But if she does not please her master, who is designated for 
her uh, for himself, then let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designated her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or her clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these three things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. What? I read that and I thought, okay, I could read it through the lenses of this culture, but I could, if I could read it through the lenses of the culture of that time and through the character of God who in so many ways in the Old Testament is saying, this is not supposed to be like this, but if you choose, and I'm going to presuppose your sickened heart is going to do these things, then I'm going to protect the vulnerable. And this law protects the vulnerable. It protects the woman. The woman from being mistreated, the woman from being a, a possession that could be bought and then sold for a greater price. So in other words, he's saying, hey, if you're going to take on a wife through the dowry system and you go, oh, I don't like her anymore, she's just property to me, you have no right to then sell her to some foreign um, country for more money. Secondly, if, if you don't like her, and so you, I mean, this is so messed up to even think about, but you, know, you, you, you give her, you, know, you don't like her, you don't get to mistreat her. Third, if, if she's for your son, like you purchased a bride for your son, you don't get to go, oh, that's the slave girl over there. You must treat her as she is your daughter. She has rights. She has values. And so you, you cannot just write her off. And, and then um, beyond all these things, if you fail to do it, you just need to let her go. You need to let her go. You can't control her. How do we apply that? We don't apply that because that's not our system. But what do we discern from that? We be very careful the way that we see people, especially women. Um, especially in, in our over-sexualized culture. Be very careful. The Bible is warning us. There's value here. You're not allowed to treat women this way. You're not allowed to treat vulnerable people this way. And so um, that, again, is another part of the uncomfortable Exodus chapter 21. And I chose these things because I wanted to... They, these were the toughest ones. These were the most, like out there. Now for the rest of the chapter and the time that I have remaining um, they aren't like super easy but there's something to, to pull away from them as well. Um, Exodus chapter 12 uh, excuse me 21 verses 12 through 32 deals with criminal law and, um, and I found it really interesting that the criminal law that, that it's dealing with in this first go around of rules is protecting family. It starts with like, hey, if you, if kids, if you hit your parents, you're going to die. <laughs> That's how it starts. There's no like, oh, you're just having a bad day. Like, and, and the striking of parents wasn't like, you know, like giving your dad a Charlie horse because you're having fun or something. The striking of parents, striking was with the intent of doing great bodily harm to someone. So child, if you're gonna, if you're gonna like go after your parents, it is the death penalty. And that might sound incredibly harsh. Does that sound harsh to you? For those of you that are awake, does that sound harsh to you? <laughs> not our culture, not our time, but what's the principle that we discern? That this is a very important thing. That family is very important. You begin to erode family, you erode culture. And when a child takes over the authoritative role that a parent should hold, you're eroding family. There's application for us in this, in this moment in our history. 
but it's taken very, very seriously. And then secondly, in the 16th verse, whoever kidnaps someone, if you steal a man and sell them, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. You can't go kidnapping people. And if we find you with somebody, you're dead. That's the law. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or mother shall be put to death. Again, goes back around to protecting the family unit, to protecting the vulnerable. Somebody who's going to be kidnapped is vulnerable. Verse 18, when men quarrel in one... This is so it, it deals with first degree and second degree myrtle, murder. Myrtle? <laughs> you should meet first degree myrtle. <laughs> uh, for, <laughs> verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes another with a stone or his fist, and one man doesn't die, but the other um, but, but, um, does not die, but takes to his bed. Then the man rises again and walks out the door with his staff. The one who struck him shall be clear and only pay the loss of his, um, of his time. But uh, <laughs> this is funny on some level. But he shall, have, um, he shall have him thoroughly healed. Again, you can read it on your own, but the, the bullet points that I made here for the sake of time, the protection of family, assaulting and cursing parents, the, the um, compensation for assault, kidnapping, you get the death penalty. Murder one, it, you can read this part on your own. First degree murder, you're, um, if it's premeditated, you're going to get the death penalty. Second degree murder, if it's not premeditated, possibly accidental, you're going to have a, an ability to flee to a place of refuge to have a sense of justice there. The next and final part of 21, and you're saying thank you, Jesus, um, is, is liability and restora- restitution. And this deals with um, matters that um, you were irresponsible and someone was harmed as a result, and you got to do something about it. So, for example, you know how you guys all have oxes? Yeah. So if your ox gores a donkey, you're going to have to pay. Um, if your ox gores another person and they kill him, uh, you're, you're going to have to pay. But if, you're, uh, if your ox gores somebody and you knew you had a goring ox and you didn't do something about it, you're in big trouble. You know, you can read this stuff on your own. But in 33, just so we're continuing on, in, at 21.33, when a, uh, when a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and doesn't cover it and an ox or donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration he shall give money to its owner, and the dead beast shall be his. What's the principle? You know, you guys don't have oxen. You hopefully don't have a big pit in your house that someone's going to fall in. What's the principle? Responsibility for what you have. Realizing that your irresponsibility leads to somebody else's harm. And so when you're irresponsible, there's a consequence, right? And so it calls us to a, a higher standard. And it's protective of people. Uh, verse 35. When a man's... It says but in there. When a man's ox butts another um, so that it dies, then he shall um, sell the ox and share its price. And the dead beast also, um, also they shall share. Um, and if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his. Again, lots of unrelatable things to us, but lots of principle that we can take into heart. And so as I I wrap this whole thing up, um, I do want to invite the worship team to come back. And that last song that they played, um, 
brings us back to home base and for me brings us back to the picture of why the Old Testament creates so much tension so that the people of God can follow the whole story and find that there's resolution. And the resolution is not in your ability to keep your ox in your doors. It's not in your ability to bury the hole that you dug. It's not in your ability to treat your slave well or not well. It's not in your system of marriage or whatever else. Those were regulations that God was setting forth to protect the vulnerable. The resolution, the solution comes in realizing we are a mess. Society is a mess. And given to its own devices, the heart sickness will harm everyone in its way. It will be selfish, and it will be self-seeking, and it will do great harm. And, and, and we're witnessing that in the world that we live in, and societies past have witnessed that, and generations past have witnessed that. And that's what brings us to the good news of the gospel. It brings us to Jesus. It brings us to the only solution for the sickness in our heart and the transformation that comes when we become new in Christ. Then we ourselves can say, hey, I have willfully chosen to come under the lordship and the submission of Jesus Christ. I have submitted myself to him and to his ways. And I've become an earring-wearing uh, bond servant. Justification for any of you who want to pierce your ear at any age. So, sorry. I wanted to ask them to lead in that song because even as they were playing and I was standing up here, because I had so much of this in me throughout the week, I was so celebrating and so full in my heart and so much in wonder of the gospel. The gospel's the solution. It's the answer. And if you know Jesus and you follow Jesus, you know that to be true. If you don't and you've been on the fence, I hope that all the agony of these, this 21st chapter has pointed you to the fact that um, the law is a schoolmaster showing you that you can't do it on your own, that you need someone to change your heart in order to, to be the person that God's called you to be. Um, but beyond that, the promise of the gospel is hope for, for us, right? The promise of the gospel is that if any one of us would be in Christ, that we're a new creation with a new heart, that the old things pass away and everything becomes brand new. And coming with that, that newness of life comes all the benefits of being under the lordship of a good and perfect father. A good and perfect father who says this, um, through his son Jesus, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you can be also. And I'm coming back for you. Thomas, who we know, says, I don't know where you're going and I don't know how to get there. Speaks for the whole group. We don't know. Jesus, in his goodness, says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I'm the life. Those words are, are electric for us because they're the words of Christ. But they're the words of hope that that means that any of us believe. That we get to spend an eternity with him in a place that he's creating. I shared this recently in a memorial service. It hit me that it's a place that he's creating. You're not creating it. I'm not creating it. I don't know what heaven's going to be like. I just know it's going to be better than what I can imagine. It's where I want to be because I want to be with him. Part of the uncomfortable truth of the Bible is there's a place called hell as well. And it's a place that would love our society would love to erase. In fact, many pastors and preachers would love to erase it because it's an uncomfortable topic. Just like Exodus 21 is a very uncomfortable topic. But hell is a place of separation from, from God, eternal separation of God. That would be enough to define hell. But not only is it separation from God, but it's suffering. Jesus talks a lot about it. And 
it's not for us to, to meditate on the, the suffering of hell, but it's for us to reference it and say this, that this is a place not intended for any one person. It was a place intended for the devil and his angels. It was a place of ultimate justice to say, hey, all that wrong will be dealt with and I will make all things new and it does not include that evil. And, and yet, sadly, we in our own pride can look at God's laws and God's ordinances and say, no, that's ridiculous. I know a better way. I will create my own. I'll take a little bit of yours. I'll take a little bit of that and a bunch of mine. And I'm banking on me. And I'm not saying this to be prideful or arrogant, but I would just ask the question, how's that working for you? You know, banking on you. Because I, I know in my own life, when I've banked on me, it's always led me to bad places. But, but when I settle on the reality of Jesus, when I settle on the goodness of God and salvation, I am I'm confident. And it leads me to life and life abundant. So I think you know these things, but I think they need to be said, and I think they need to be rehearsed in our minds, and I think they need to be on our lips. Because stuff's getting serious. Right? Stuff's getting serious. And when things get serious, it isn't a place for us to resort to fear. It isn't a place for us to go hide. It isn't for us to respond to like sudden terror with more fear in our lives. It's a place for us to look at our lives and to find confidence in a God who loves us and who set parameters for us. And so I share those things with that heart. But I, I talked a lot, and so I'm going to let them sing this song. And as they do, I pray that, that, that the reality of God's Spirit, the truth of God's Word, would settle over your heart and that you'd have a chance to respond to Jesus. Would you like to stand? Let's stand together. song even says it, that you did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. 
You healed the, the sickness of our heart and you're transforming us. God, I thank you for your character and your nature that in a, in a messy, messed up world where there are systems that cause harm to vulnerable people, you institute laws that protect them. We see that in your character and in your nature, that you are the father to the fatherless, that you are a protector, that you are a provider, that you're a God of justice and a God of mercy. And we honor you for that and we thank you. We uphold those things and we call to mind how great you are. And those things lead us to understanding our own frailties, failures, how we so often miss the mark. Lord, for those here in the room as we are followers of you, for areas where we've become slave to sin, thank you for a gentle correction from the Holy Spirit that leads to repentance and your kindness that leads us to true repentance, a turning from that. And may the lights come on for us, Lord. Be there any area in our life where we are slaves and not free because Jesus, you said, You've come to set us free, and whom the Son is set free is free indeed. Lord, if there are those that are in the room that have yet to say yes to you and, and, re, and understanding the reality and the gravity of the moment that we're living in, God, I pray they would find hope in you and believe in you that the, it's always going to be true that you so love the world, that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in you won't perish but have everlasting life. Thank you for that hope. Bless your people, God. Walk with them throughout the week. Bring to mind your word, Lord. Help them to wrestle with hard stuff and to find um, in the end you are even greater than we ever imagined. So thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Amen. God bless you.